Welcome to the Dental Business Podcast with your host and owner of multiple businesses, a mentor, investor, and dental surgeon, Brad Thornton. Hi, guys. Uh, Brad Thornton here. So we're talking to Lincoln Harris today. He's uh, really, really well-known around the world. You know, he puts some seriously good clinical cases on, online for all to see, and he's been doing that for pretty much for decades, really. Um, he set up his Facebook group a while back, which now has over 75,000 members, uh, Restorative Implant Practice Excellence Full Protocol. Now, it's a bit of a mouthful, is that Facebook group, but if you can find it, which you'll be able to, um, definitely give it a like because uh, I'll give it a follow because you're going to be inspired by the type of dentistry that gets, play, uh, gets put onto that, onto that group. The good thing is, and the one thing that I really sort of like about it, is that it kind of makes you put the full protocol. So your treatment planning, your imagery, and preparation, surgical photos, your the thought process behind the options that you've gone uh, gone through. And you know, you kind of lay it out bare. And as, as a dental practitioner, it's something that you know you can learn a lot from. So I really advise finding that Facebook group. It's also got an educational a training company that, that teaches sort of dentists on a global scale, which is growing. And, you know, that's R-I-P-E-Global.com. Um, and it really is shaping up to be one of the best educational resources for dentists in the world. So I'd recommend going to that as well. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So you should be able to see that in the in the bump that you can see when you, when you listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, we went through quite a lot of stuff. You know, someone like Lincoln, who has built a career on being meticulous, being methodical. I wanted to get someone like that on the show. And to be fair, there's no one else like him in the world, or no one else who I felt as 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 appropriate for this interview as he was. Um, because after coronavirus and off the back of the pandemic, you know, how easy is it for you to not be methodical, to try and be quick? cut corners because you want to earn money quickly and you want to kind of get money in the bank and, and regain some losses. But you know what? That's not what dentistry is about. That's not how you build a business. That's not how you develop long-term success. So I wanted to get into the mind of somebody like Lincoln who um, has built a career on this, get his take on it. You know, we, we, we went around a bit. We, we spoke about quite a lot of different topics. Hopefully you're going to find it interesting. Um, so here it is, Lincoln Harris. So um, yeah, thank you for for joining us. So you know you're you're an educator of of Dennis. So you know you you kind of talk to people about all kinds of stuff, um, and you know looking at you and following you for for some time, you know you, you're talking about mindset, business. You're talking about clinical aspects. So you kind of touch on everything. Um, but the one thing that I I really wanted to to chat with you about um, a lot of today was the there's a sort of human trait, which is, you know, take the short-term reward that can kind of sometimes compromise the long-term reward if you were just a bit more patient. And coming off the back of coronavirus pandemic, I think there's going to be a temptation for for people to be trying to generate money, trying to work fast, trying to cut corners, Um and you're a clinician who I think is quite meticulous and you sort of talk about this kind of stuff. Um, mm. So I'd like to get your opinion on, on how we can, as a, as a dental practitioner, try and change our mindset to the way that we work to, despite this temptation, still focus on quality. Sure. That's a very Hang big intro. I'm aware of that. Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, you know, the the one of how do we deal with building our business back up again and uh, resist that urge to make short term decisions. Now, I I would like to give you an easy answer and some sort of pithy one two three step documentary or whatever, but it's not that easy. And it's it it when you see people for whom it looks easy, it's often because they have done it. The wrong way, and and that's certainly the case for me. I've I've taken the short term view on trying to generate revenue, and it can put you in a, a long term hole. It can make it very difficult in the long term. So, uh, 
and because people can subconsciously tell that we we put off like a uh, I know it sounds a little bit hippie, but we put off kind of an aura of 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 yeah. what we truly believe. So it, we can say one thing with our mouth, but what we're really trying to do, what we're really motivated for in our in our heart, is what people can sense this. And so if if we're talking about the long term benefit of the patient with our mouth, but in our you know somewhere inside us, there's this desperation, this desperation to earn money, to do things, to earn money, to to make decisions for our own benefit. People can sense that, okay? Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people can sense when there is a discrepancy between uh, the, what we're saying to the patient and what we're thinking to ourselves. And now, I, I'm, go, I'm going to preface these comments by saying that I can't predict the future. In fact, no one can predict the future. And people who have a you know if you get a hundred people to predict the future probably one of them will be right and if that person's got any sense they'll write a book about it and then they'll quit predicting the future thereafter because if they keep it up their record's going to be ruined so so uh you know and warren buffett says he uh he believes all predictions except ones about the future and so i i can't tell you what's going to happen i can't say well i've got some idea and i, I have friends who speak with great confidence about what's going to happen and, and how our practices are going to go. And that's just, I would love to have that sort of confidence, but I don't. Yeah. So I can't tell you whether the practices are all going to be great, whether we're all going to be struggling, whether we're going to be struggling in some countries and not in others. I have no idea. I can't control that. So I'm not going to talk about it. What I can control is how I treat my patients uh, with a long-term view. Now, I'll give you a little bit of history and how this came about. <clears throat> so uh, many of the lessons I learned, I had a practice that was absolutely booming a few years ago. It was like unbelievably profitable and we were doing big implant cases left and right. And then we had a natural disaster, which is very simple. Similar to a coronavirus, I would say worse. Uh, we had a massive flood <clears throat> affected everywhere for 120 miles in all directions. And my business fell, besides being shut for a bit, sound familiar? It was shut for a while because like, literally you couldn't buy groceries because trucks couldn't get up and down the road. <clears throat> uh, and then after that, 10% of people's houses were destroyed for like hundreds of kilometres. And so that put a huge physical hole in the economy. Like literally if you take someone's house and smash it to pieces and they don't have insurance or their insurance policy doesn't cover it, they don't have money for teeth, certainly yeah. not for veneers. And they don't there. You can talk about the value of a crown and, you know, create value till the cows come home. They're not getting a crown. Okay. They're not even getting a filling. They'll just, let their teeth rot until such time as they're back on their feet. So that was a difficult time and I uh, had to lay off staff and so on. And then I was really, for a while I was trying to really, I was a bit desperate really. I was desperately trying to generate some revenue. <clears throat> and the problem is that the more desperate you are, the less anyone wants to dance with you. So if you go around looking desperate at a dance, no one wants to dance. And so if you go around desperate in a dental practice, no one wants to do their teeth. So, uh, and then somewhere along the way, I said, look, I, it doesn't seem to matter what I do. So I'm just going to absolutely focus on doing the best for every patient. I will not let them go out the door unhappy. If I have to cut their front crowns off because they don't like the shade, I'll cut them off. I'm never going to fight with the patient. I'm just going to try and do whatever it takes. I'm not going to think about the profitability of any individual procedure. You know, if they don't like their crowns, I'll cut them off. If they don't like their denture, I'll make it a new one, whatever. I'll just make sure that I do the absolute best that I can for each patient. And that's, and you know, with the big consultations, I got so afraid to tell them the treatment plan. I was, I was, uh, 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 just 
you know, I would get them in for the first little bit of treatment and get some perio done. And then, uh, you know, we would talk about it a bit more and then slowly. And so uh, what actually came out of this is like before coronavirus, my practice was booked uh, three months ahead. Okay. It was, it was hectically stressfully busy and that hasn't changed after. So maybe it's the rebound, maybe it's the pent up demand people are talking about. I don't know. I just know that right now our practice is busier and we're getting more new patients called than we had before. And they're not emergencies. They're like, you know, I can't smile. That's not a, yeah, not, not being able to smile is not an emergency. Okay. That's a, that's yeah. a want, not a need. So out of that whole difficult experience, my whole approach to patients and treatment planning is really grew. That's, that's where it comes from. So when you hear me teach treatment planning, that's where it came from. It came from really desperate, difficult times where you can put as many ads on television, Google and Facebook as you like, and no one is getting any work done. Yes. So now I continue to use that same philosophy, even through good times. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it sounds really old fashioned, basically focus really, really hard on doing the best for the patient and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Maybe not, on any given month, but overall. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah, think that's... it's, um, I think it's a really, I mean, I was watching something um, that you did where you were, you were splitting down your process from, you know, the, the, the points of which the, you know, I'm going to call it the patient journey. I mean, it sounds a bit cheesy, but the point at which um, things can kind of slip up, you know, whether, because the thing is we, you know, people are talking that if you're generating revenue, you might have an initial cash flow. But if you're redoing things, if you're having to send things back, if the patients are unsatisfied with the result because you've not consented properly, then the the financial impact, like you said, longer term actually ends up being you know far worse than you anticipated. Um, and mm. I think the way that you look at these stages where you're talking about making sure that you're communicating effectively with patients. So you know what their goal is. You consent correctly, take longer. Um, and the treatment meticulousness that you, that you sort of advocate, um, really, if you're a dentist wanting to earn more money, you can't look at right now because if you cut corners at any of those points, then you store up problems further down the line, don't you? Um, yeah, I, I think that this is, I think the, the really high level economic technical term for this is robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, you know, it's actually quite Excellent. funny because if you, yeah, yeah, if you, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I had a uh, patient today, okay, for a consultation. There's like $50,000 in the end. But that was an emergency patient. She called me on a Saturday, pretty much. She couldn't get into any dentist. Um, her temporary was falling off her implant. I went in and said, and I thought she was a bit of an annoying patient. Okay. <clears throat> so I put the temporary back on, sent it back to her other dentist. And then a year and a half later, she comes in and she says, I remember that time you came in on a Saturday to see me. Okay, I don't get a lot of calls. Don't think I'm like a saint who's there every Saturday yeah. fixing football teeth and stuff like this. Okay. <laughs> I, it was, uh, you know, my phone number, if you call my office, there is a message. And if you wait right to the end of the message, it tells you my phone number and hardly anyone waits till the end of the message. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> only, only the desperate, only the desperate. Wait that long. So she came in, her problem is she has an implant that is failing. She, lost 50% of the bone. So the easy thing is go, okay, well, let's uh, take the implant out, do a bone graft and do it again. Okay. It's a quick sell. And I said to her, what do you want? She goes, yeah. well, I've got infection up around here. I want you to fix the infection. I said, well, what do you think about your lower teeth? She says, I don't really like them. I said, you've got a lot of wear on those lower teeth. Uh, how old are you? And she said, she's in her seventies. And I said, well, do you care if your lower teeth wear out? Because you know, they're like 60% gone and she's, so it was just a conversation. It was an hour of basically almost no revenue. Uh, like I think for my new patient consultations, I just have a flat fee 
they can have as many cone beams as they want. And yeah. obviously they wouldn't get more than one, but uh, before someone sends me to the regulator, but uh, yeah. uh, they can have, you know, it's a flat fee, it covers a cone beam, as many x-rays, PAs, whatever, photos, perio, whatever, all of that stuff. And I said, do you know what? You need to have proper planning. And she says, well, I just want you to fix this tooth. And I said, well, your tooth keeps breaking because you've got heavy occlusion and I can't manage your occlusion because you're missing too many back teeth and you've got low and low teeth. So the reality is if you don't get the rest of it fixed or even look at it, I'm not going to fix your tooth because it'll just break again. So I basically said no. Yeah. She came and says, I want an implant. I said, no, let's plan it properly. She says, but I really want an implant. I said, no, let's plan it properly. Now, it's not easy to do this. Okay, I have quite a bit of experience. I couldn't do it for 15 maybe years. So, you know, it's not, you're not just going to listen to this podcast and go to work on Monday and completely and change everything. That's <laughs> it's <kaboom. not. laughs> it, it, It's hard. But out of that, so then she came back and I said, you know, we'll get records. So we got records, sent it off to the lab, got a wax up, did a mock-up today, discussed all the options and there you go. It's a, so what could have been one implant very quickly is now with a slow process over, well, sort of slowly over 18 months has become a $50,000 process. So that yeah. is the benefit of slow. Now, the problem is you have to wait that 18 months yeah. or it's usually three months, okay, in my practice from when someone comes in the door until their treatment plan is delivered is usually three to four months on average. But the size of the treatment plan makes up for that slowness, yeah. but you have to wait. It's difficult to wait when you first start doing this. After about a year and a half, it's great because then all those big cases that you've been doing all the time, they just start coming one after the other and then you just get slammed with them. But the, hard, the initial part where you're waiting is really hard. It's kind of like that pipeline, isn't it? You're sort of storing things up and then um, everything starts to feed feed further down the line. I've been to, have you read Daniel Priestley's Oversubscribed? No. Sorry. And so the book, is, is, you've just described one of the ideas with it where actually if you're a business that is oversubscribed, that um, is well sought after, you have to get used to saying no. I mean, I know that in a clinical environment, there are other parameters that will dictate whether you say yes or no to somebody, whether you'd want to or not, because like you've just described, you might not feel from a clinical point of view it's the right thing to do. But um, if you're telling people no, then you do – it's that psychology, isn't it? It's where you're kind of sticking to your guns, you're creating the best possible service, and the right people are drawn to that. So um, – if you say yes to everything and you try to do everything, then you, you devalue yourself a little bit, don't you? You, you know, it's, um, mm. um, it's important to, Absolutely. yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing because what I do is actually very old fashioned and you could say it's extremely, extremely professional. Okay. What should a dentist do? Cause see, as dentists, we're not well-trained, so we don't have a great deal of confidence in ourselves. This is because, you know, a dentist is a surgical specialist. No other surgical specialist graduates at the age of 22 with five years of training yeah. and having seen less than a hundred patients. So, uh, you know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, which is no more difficult than dentistry, uh, you would have, you know, in Australia anyway, that you, you're like 35 by the time you graduate and you have done thousands, you've spent several years in hospital basically doing orthopedics under guidance continuously and, you know, pervasively. Yeah. So, uh, so we don't have a lot of confidence. That, that's part of our trouble in dentistry is we don't have confidence to tell the patient what they should do. Uh, yeah. This is because when we, you know, when you're 23, and graduating or 24 or however old you can't there's no way at that stage of your life and your career that you can look a patient in the eye and feel confident that you know what is the best type of treatment for them because you just don't have enough experience you don't have enough training you're not old enough if anything else so uh you probably don't have enough money you know yeah. <laughs> most dental students are pretty poor and to look someone yeah. in the eye and say you need to spend ten thousand bucks is is 
impossible. So. Yeah, it's a big deal, that, isn't it? Yeah. So, but that that's the part that's been difficult for me to learn, but also very de-stressing to learn, okay, what is it that the patient should have? You know, like don't, don't if a patient has a really broken down tooth and you really can only fix it with a crown, I don't offer them a filling. Okay. It, it, like, you know, there, there are cases where you can do a five surface composite for sure, but there are cases where you really can't. And if I can't do it with something besides a crown, I'm not going to offer it. I'm not, you know, like I, I've been to a few surgeons. I'm old enough to have been to surgeons now and they don't give me five. They don't give me all available options. They give me what they give me two. either do it or you don't. Yeah. So uh, your, your hip can be made out of titanium ceramic, or we could even use wood if we wanted to. It's kind of, um, it's this, it's this way. Cause this is the best way for you or not. That's the kind of option yeah. that you give. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you, if you're paying for it personally, then you might get offered, that's right. A different prosthesis, you know, they might go, okay, this one's better, but it's an extra $20,000 or whatever, but they they don't go, okay, would you like us to do this surgical approach or that one? Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't offer that. They don't, yeah. And they don't offer you a wooden hip yeah. to save you money. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, exactly. well, if you can't afford <laughs> titanium, maybe we can make one out of balsa. It's a bit cheaper. Mm. How, do, how do you feel yeah. about that? Like, and we that's, can do it that's quicker as well. What we do, because <laughs> yeah. um, you talk about this this concept of minimally invasive, don't you? How you know the minimally invasive? Really, if you do something once, that's minimally invasive. But if you've got to repeat something more often, even if in theory it's a, a less invasive procedure, if you're redoing something, then you know, can you call it minimally invasive? And and what does that term truly mean? And is it is there any sort of merit to that, to that phrase anywhere? Look, there is merit to not being invasive, but the term minimally invasive should also include the number of invasions. Yeah. You know, like uh, if, you have, if you have endoscopic surgery in your abdomen somewhere, that's much less invasive than getting opened up. Uh, it still hurts like heck, but it's much less invasive. But you couldn't then justify and go, well, we have to do the surgery every two years, but it's minimally invasive. No one's going to accept yeah. that. So the idea that it's okay for things to fail quickly because it's minimally invasive is not acceptable. Um, so, so minimally invasive is also, first of all, you don't want to do, uh, you don't want to do a damage, but see, there's a lot of confusion about this because often when people talk about this, they show a virgin teeth case and go, yeah. see, this is why you shouldn't do crowns. But mostly we're not doing crowns on teeth that are virgin teeth. Like these are teeth that are ruined. You know, they've had a MOD buccal lingual composite already and they've got cracks and this tooth is like on its last leg. And that's not the time to be minimally invasive. That's like saying, you know, I'm a minimally invasive melanoma oncologist. <laughs> yeah, but the patient the patient is dead, but at least you didn't do much. You know, it's yeah. It, it invasion has to be balanced against the outcome. Mm. Uh, so, uh, for me, the easiest way to deal with it is I ask the patient. Uh, you know, I go, "What's the first thing I ask all my patients is what is your long term goal with your teeth?" Yeah, uh, because I you know one because I want them to think long term. And two, because I want to know it makes life a lot easier. So Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. communication at the beginning just saves headaches later on, doesn't it? I mean, I, I from my I mean, I a private dentist in in the UK and the the biggest headaches are the ones where at the end of treatment you've got this perceived misalignment with expectation versus outcome, and you realize that actually you didn't ask enough questions at the beginning. Maybe um the, the veneers that you've done or the treatment that you've done didn't truly target that that one thing um, that was bothering them. And you end up having to spend loads of time and money and energy trying to get to where it was. Um, so, yeah, that, that initial communication is vital, isn't it? Yeah. And look, we will always get into trouble where we want to do the procedure more than the patient. Yeah. So, 
if you want to do veneers more than the patient wants to do veneers, that's, you know, your risk of trouble there because you, if you want to do it too much, okay, you will oversell it. You'll oversell yeah. it to get it in the book, okay? And that, at that point, and you'll underprice it. So you'll yeah. oversell it, you increase their expectations slightly beyond what you can achieve, and then you will lower the price slightly because you really want to do this procedure. And so now, now you're in the difficult situation where you're trying to fix something, but you didn't charge enough. And so you were hardly making money in the first place. And now you're definitely not. So, uh, and you know, keep in mind that I definitely cut things off. I, yeah. uh, I just showed a case that took me like two or three try-ins and then I inserted it. And just as I inserted the case, one of the central incisors wasn't seated by like half a millimeter. And it affected the whole smile and everything. And so literally I inserted it on the 22nd of December and I cut it off on like the 5th of January. So That's just painful, just the, isn't it? No, uh, actually it's not for me now, okay? It was once. Yeah. But no, I don't find it painful now. I just roll with it. Like, you just got to cut, um, cut it off. Don't, don't think about that. Don't think about it yet. Think about your hourly rate when you're assessing your business, but never ever think about your hourly rate when you're doing dentistry because that's when you get stressed. Yeah. So time, time, it's our clock watching, trying to do something quickly. Um, yeah. And you mentioned about coming off the back of university and graduating and, you know, you, you kind of get thrust into this world where you do have a lot of responsibility and maybe not the, the, the training to back it up. So um, in terms of those younger dentists, what do you say to them? Because nowadays you've got, I mean, you've got your Facebook group um, that, well, I don't know where we're at, 80, 80 90,000, something. Um, and the, the clinical cases that are shown on there are unbelievable. And, you know, the way that they're structured, you know, you're getting a lot of immersion of, of how some of the best guys in the world are doing their treatment planning. And you're a 23 year old dentist, or and you know you've graduated, and you're seeing all this stuff. There's a, a jump, isn't there? There's this, there's this training that they've got to kind of go through. Um, what would you advise them um, to to look to do? Is it a case of finding mentors? You know, I mean, obviously going on the courses is vital because you need to try and get the hands on bits and pieces, but. Um, do you think that this? Yeah. Look, you, yeah. even even training doesn't get you there. So it. Okay. There, there's several parts to that question. So what do I advise a person who's just graduated when they see someone like me who's punching out what looked like you know a rehab every week or something like this? You need to understand that I wasn't like that when I started. So I remember like my first. I graduated in 98. I started my own practice in 2000. And I think my first rehab, which was unpaid on my mum, which took about 18 months because I had no idea what I was doing really, yeah. was about 2004. And I probably did one a year. And the first few were free. So I did like, yeah, would have been two or three. And, and the first ones I would have hardly made it any money because it just takes so long when you don't know what you're doing so and then i made a lot of mistakes and had to fix a lot of broken stuff so uh so that that it in our practice we don't get logarithmic growth of our income because that wouldn't be diff that would be difficult unless you employ other dentists but we do get logarithmic growth of the quality of our cases so the quality of of your cases and your patients if you work hard at it okay and that means saying no and it also means patients leaving you you can't have great patients if your slightly less great patients don't leave at some point so yeah. uh, that's that's you know it's tough it's tough to lose people i've i've learned a lot of things like a lot of the consultation stuff i teach it's because i've had patients run out the door <laughs> like yeah. literally i'd go okay i'm gonna yeah, i'd go to some course and get a great theory like you know they go put your fees up 15% and your margins will be so big that that will cover the loss of volume. Turns out they didn't. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Putting your fees up 5% is okay, but 15% is ridiculous. And you will see a drop in your number of patients if you do that. So, which will offset the profit. So, uh, you know, I've tried all these things. Uh, I've tried just advising every patient to get ideal treatment without being extremely sophisticated. And uh, that didn't work either. Uh, I was poor for a year until I <laughs> abandoned that one. So, so to young dentists, first of all, what I do and what other people see, you see do is really hard. Don't underestimate how hard it is. It's hard for us. It's hard for me. Uh, the cases I do are hard for me. Now, I'm competent and I've got a lot of experience, but they're hard. And I do a lot of them, but they're hard. There's no doubt they're hard. And they, they're hard more, not just from the skill point of view, but even more so from having the patience and the self-discipline to slow down and take the time. That is really, really hard. It's really hard to not want to rush. It's really hard to be able to look a patient in the eye and say, this is how much money you need to spend so that I can spend the time. Yeah. They're really hard things to learn and you won't learn them without failing sometimes. And by failing, I mean, you know, when you do a crown prep, the crown falls off, that's a failure. But when you do a consultation and the patient runs away and never comes back, that's also a failure. And so yeah. it is a technical to consult with a patient is a practiced skill. And if you don't to advance, you have to fail. Yeah. Uh, you have to figure out what doesn't work in a way, not not purposefully, but um, yeah, you you'll, you'll find out. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's and so when you talk about logarithmic growth, like if you see the cases, I do a lot of complex cases now, but that that percentage of complex cases has really skyrocketed in the last two years. So that it's not a linear progression. Like you don't start out like the first year you do one rehab, okay? But, second year you do two and then the third year you do three. It's not like that. It's like, you know, for 10 years you do hardly any, you know, maybe one a year. And then between the 11th and 15th year you do like two a year and then it jumps up a lot and then suddenly <laughs> all of your cases end up complicated and you wish they weren't. Okay. <laughs> like... At some point, you, if you go down this road, you end up with every single patient is a difficult one and you, like they, they, they're being often rejected by another dentist or, uh, you know, then every single consultation is a difficult consultation about large sums of money and, and complex dentistry. And that sounds really great, but actually it's really hard. And it's sometimes you just go, I just want like two crowns, like two crowns yeah. on the back quadrant and a filling I just and a scale. Okay, that's all I want. I'm a simple man. So, <laughs> do, you, do you think that's because you are creating these more complicated plans due to the fact that you 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 know you're so multidisciplinary with your thoughts that that that's just a natural evolution of you, or is it the actual fact that you're doing more? You've got more people out there that have experienced what you provide, and then people are drawn to you. And or do you think it's a combination yeah, it's of both? The second one. Well, Second you see one, yeah. more. The more, actually, yeah. there's, both of them are true. You cannot treat what you don't see. So if you don't yeah. know anything, you're not going to see it. So it's quite possible, well, it's almost certain that 40, however old I am, like 43 or something, 43-year-old <laughs> me sees a you lot more. You start after a certain age, don't you? Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm 21 still. Um, no, yeah. so it's quite likely that, Current me looks at a patient very, very differently to new graduate me. Yeah. So new graduate me, basically, I could see holes and radiographs and scale. That was pretty much, you know, and teeth that needed extracting. That's about all I could see. I couldn't see parafunction, yeah. you know, or destructive lateral forces. I didn't see risks of vertical root fracture. I didn't see um, orthodontic over-eruption causing shortening of the teeth via bringing the gingiva down instead of the incisal edge position moving. Uh, so, yes, part of it is that I have more training, so I see more, okay? Uh, but the other part is that the better you get at treating complex patients, the more complex patients you will get. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, if you get, 
if you run a TV show about what a fancy chef you are, then you're probably going to get people coming in wanting to see what a fancy chef you are. And you've kind of set a big benchmark and now to impress them, you have to work even harder. So yeah, you create, I don't know, you make your bed, so you have to lie in it. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. It's uh, it's like a, it's like this circular kind of never ending raising of the bar um, because you've always got to meet yeah. your own expectations, don't you? Absolutely. And, and bear in mind that the, the, the number of, the number of patients who need complex, who it's not that need, no one really needs it. No one needs teeth. Yeah. Uh, the number of patients who want it is quite small. Having said that, and, and so, you know, there, there is a big need for a lot of dentists to have absolutely no interest in complex cases, okay? We, we need a lot of those dentists. And if one of those dentists is on here listening, that's also a, quite a difficult path to follow. It's not easy to do just really basic general dentistry because of the volumes, okay? The, the speed, you get the same responsibility to fulfill the same level of informed consent if you're churning people through every 10 minutes, okay, yeah. as you do when you can spend two and a half hours before you lay a drill on their tooth. So uh, it's difficult to do that. That's a really good point, actually. Uh, yeah. So, um, and, and informed consent is an interesting topic. When I was less experienced, I thought informed consent was how you cover your bum legally whilst doing whatever it is you want to do. Right. And what I have since learned that informed consent is actually just doing the right thing with your patient. Like, you know, if something can go disastrously wrong, that's an expectation you should cover off with your patient. You know, that's just good. That's actually good business. It's good business. Like, uh, it took me a long time to understand, like, informed consent is not like this adversarial thing that, oh, you get forced to do informed consent and I'll tick the box and get it out of the way and get the nurse to do it. It's actually about communication. It's about managing expectations. You know, like if I do this implant, you do realize there's a chance you may never feel your lip again. Yeah. You know, is that, do you still want to do the implant? You know, because it's easier to have that conversation before. And then the patient goes, well, now I can't feel my lip and I'm very unhappy. And you go, oh, well, you really wanted the implant. But if I, and then they bring up this word, if I had no one. Yeah. Like That's it. I think sometimes there's a, there's this concern, isn't there? Or this, you know, that, you know, you're so desperate to, to do a treatment that the biggest side effect or the, the most negative part of the treatment is in small print at the end or it's embedded within it. And you try to kind of skim over that because you want to do the treatment. Um, but yeah, it's true. Cause really, if you've got a fully informed patient, it's just less stressful. Um, Oh, it's way less stressful. You know, like, uh, let's put it this way. Um, you know, sometimes implants don't work. If yeah. you do 100 implants, you're not going to get 100 implants that are successful. That's just, it just never happens. Like, not even the best people get. Like, you might get 100 in a row, but you won't get 100%. And if you get 100 in a row, and then you might get 200 in a row that are all successful, I can tell you, you have a cluster coming your way because that's how statistics yeah. work. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, it's just, you know, when you're really blunt and upfront about it and say, look, you know, if I do 100 implants, 95 or 98 will work. Two to five won't, depending on the patient. That's just how it is. So, if you can't cope with the fact that you could do the surgery, spend the money, and there's a small chance it might not work and you might have to do the surgery again and spend the money again, uh, then maybe you shouldn't do this procedure. Yeah. And, and so I'm going back to a kind of like the, I suppose the, the efficiency of your treatment planning and the productivity of your surgery. I know that you say when you're doing your business planning, you know, don't, you know, do your hourly rate projections and work out what your prices are and all that. But when you're doing the dentistry, don't. But I know that you have the sort of rapid, efficient treatment planning. So you do, you know, you, you teach dentists this this concept of of being able to structure your planning. Um, like, how do you 
even though we're not trying to go quick, we're not trying to cut corners, how do you maintain that kind of productivity during the clinical side of your work? Um, sure. I know, you know, yeah. And so um, there's, there's several parts of that. There are parts that you can do faster. I can cut teeth really quick. Yeah. So when I do a crown prep, I can prep teeth really fast. Now, part of that is because I've done a lot of crown preps. And part of it is because I've teach, I teach quadrant dentistry. Uh, well, I teach a whole bunch of hands-on courses. And we have, we have this super heavy hands-on technique. So one of the things I guess we almost, you might say we innovated this uh, in continuing education was the super intense hands-on most hands-ons are actually 70 percent lecture and demonstration and only 30 percent hands-on this is a traditional hands-on you know that it's true because you've been to a hands-on course where first of all you listen to a lecture and then the demonstrator demonstrated for an hour and then you finally got to do something and what we did is we moved all of our stuff online so basically we run these hands-on courses like uh, posterior dentistry they do a quadrant of composites with full cuspal modeling in the morning Right. On a on a mannequin, so like a you know what you did at dental school, yeah. And then in the afternoon, and the next day they do twenty preps. So for most people, that's like eighteen preps more than they've ever done in one sitting before. And so, and, and we force them to do that many because you have to do a lot of repetitions to get your hand skills up. So uh, the. Uh, uh, so when I do crown preps, I am slow because of the shade photos and because of the tissue retraction and because of the impressions and because of the temporaries and taking the bites and all of that. But I'm not slow because of my preps. My preps are really fast. Yeah. So uh, same with consultations. I'm slow with a consultation because in a, just say I have a one-hour new patient consultation, the total amount of time doing the examination is five minutes or less. Okay. It's often less than two minutes. And I can guarantee you that my examinations are more thorough than the vast majority of people who take longer. So like our new patient consultations, I will sit there and talk with the patient usually for about 10 to 15 minutes before I even look in their mouth. I want to know what their long-term goals are, where they're going, what do they want, uh, I need to understand what they want. Like when they say, I want to be able to keep my teeth, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, people say, you, you think it's self-explanatory when someone says, I want to keep my teeth, but it's not. Like why? Why do you want to keep your teeth? Yeah. Is it because you really love your teeth? Is it because you like chewing? Is it because you like how they look? Is it because you want to avoid dentures because your mum had dentures that used to always fall out and bother her? So once you, you need to know why. why. Why do you want to keep your teeth? Why do you want to have teeth that look better what is it they want to look better so and each person has their own language so there's no point talking about aesthetics to someone i had a patient today and i said what do you want he says i want to be able to keep chewing what i chew i said do you care how your teeth look he says no so he is not an aesthetic patient i never mentioned aesthetics once i only talked about keeping his teeth and avoiding fractures and so on so we'll talk about that uh then if i need a full arch x-ray like a opg or a cone beam i'll do that we have a flat fee. So because I have a flat fee, patients aren't concerned about radiation. But if you charge per x-ray, they have a lot of concerns about radiation. Yeah. It's a strange, yeah, it's a strange, strange correlation, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a strange correlation between concern about radiation and uh, uh, the, 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 cost the price the for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So... Uh, then I always take a full set of photos, so full face. So full set of photos for me takes like a minute and a half. I do it all the time. It's every single patient. So it's a choreography. I get handed the camera by the assistant. I take the full face pictures, smiles, intraoral, hand the camera back. She downloads it before we finish the next sentence. But the actual exam, the bit that most people think of, takes like two minutes. So it's going to be... Headache history. Okay, now let's be fair. I have taken a full set of photos of their teeth. I usually have x-rays. A lot of my patients are complex, so they have a cone beam. I don't need to chart the teeth. Now, in your country, you may need to, but in Australia, our regulations say you need to document the teeth appropriately. 
There is nowhere that says you need to go around going MOD amalgam, yeah. MOD composite, and then actually say the two seven instead of the one seven. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, the exam like is not about charting fillings because that's all recorded in the photographs and the x-rays. Uh, and it's recorded for forensic purposes. It's recorded better than you will ever do by charting. So, yeah. so the process is headache history. I palpate the muscles of mastication and make any notes of that. I palpate the TMJ and get them to open and close. And I'm going to make note of any crepitus or clicking or dysfunction or deviation. Like, and I have an assistant typing this. So basically I just say it and it's done. The notes are done. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, do you get headaches? Okay. What's your headache history? When do you get what time of day? Okay. Like the left anterior temporalis is tender to palpation. Uh, the condyles are tender on opening and closing under palpation. And we've got a click in the left condyle causing a deviation to the right in mid opening, uh, limited opening of the patient. Uh, lymph nodes are fine. Saliva glands are fine. Uh, soft tissues are all clear periodontal diagnosis. And then we'll go and do one of those. So, you know, like probing depths of on average two to three millimeters, except around the four, seven and the two, seven and the three, six has a class one furcation and there's class one mobility of the lower incisors. And I'm just saying all this and the dental assistant's writing it down. Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't take very long to do an exam where you've done muscles of mastication, TMJ, lymph nodes, saliva glands, soft tissue for oral pathology, periodontal diagnosis, orthodontic diagnosis and occlusal diagnosis and full arch radiographs if you need them and a full set of photographs. Yeah. That's pretty thorough. Takes five minutes. Yeah. It's fast. Yeah, that that's bit comprehensive, is super fast. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay? yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's more comprehensive than average and it's really fast because I've trained an assistant to write my notes. So as I dictate them, they're written. So when I finish the, ex the moment I finish the exam, the notes are written and obviously you can watch RETP online now. So if you go to writeglobal.com, you can watch it for $30 a month. So it, it's yeah. all in there, uh, including the kind of slow way that I develop the treatment plan. So, uh, that, so that's, I'm not a fast dentist, but there are anything that you can do as a routine can be fast without cutting corners. Yeah. I think um, something you said, which um, I sound like I've been stalking you, but I, I don't know. <laughs> um, one thing. Yeah, that I, he has. Okay. Um, I saw <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Do, 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 oh, no, I'm say, call the police. I'm, I'm, I'm actually in the room next door. <laughs> um, yeah. So the. Um, yeah, I can hear the sound of chainsaws starting up. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you, you said to. I can't remember where it was, but you said you, so you get more experience. You don't book a shorter time to do the prep. You do the, the, the prepping of the teeth faster, but you spend longer doing the temporaries and, and doing that part of it because the, the long-term success of treatment can be dictated more by the quality of the temporization that you've done. So you, you spend more time doing that because yeah. you've speeded another element yeah. up. Yeah, like if you do, just say you're doing like a 10-unit anterior case which has got an aesthetic component. So I will prep way faster than I ever did. But the appointment, I actually book longer too. It's an interesting thing actually. So we often, and I've been guilty of this for a lot of my career and I still fall into it sometimes, we often look at the price we're charging and then we decide how long we need, okay? Yeah. And that doesn't make, that's not what decides how long you need to do a procedure. What yeah. decides is how long it actually takes. So, uh, partly I, you know, I was finding it stressful and I, I just started booking longer for things. Okay, okay, I need more time. I keep running late. It's stressful. So, then like a 10-unit case, I used to do, you know, one of them in the morning and then I'd, do checkups and dentures and whatever else in the afternoon. And slowly over time, I just felt it was too tiring and too stressful. So then I'd go, okay, I'm going to do this in the morning, but then I'm not going to book anything else afterwards. I'm just going to do the case. Okay, it's 10 crowns. It's a decent day. Uh, uh, I'll do the case and then when I'm finished, I'm going to go home. And I'll take breaks along the way. So... Then you can spend more time refining your temporaries or your mock-up 
Um, you do the preps, you do them more precisely, you more minimally, because if you ever do minimally invasive anything, you'll find that it is much more difficult and time consuming than just doing yeah. like getting a two millimeter burr, driving around the it's tooth. Because yeah. you always get a smooth prep with a big burr, okay? Yeah. Doing a 0.3 margin on a tooth, trying to stay in enamel for Emacs, that's super slow. Yeah. Uh, so I started booking longer and then I started to book longer for the inserts as well. You know, inserts take a long time to get right, like to adjust all the contacts and making sure everything's precise and then to get perfect isolation and to put each tooth in so you know that it's not bound up by the contacts or not sitting high, whatever. So here's what happens. You stop trying to be so fast. Your appointment book gets full quicker because you're taking longer to do stuff. Now, in the short term, you're going to go, well, that's going to earn you less money. But then what happens is that when you're doing a consultation the next day, you know that you're booked three weeks ahead and your sense of desperation drops right off. Yeah. So if you book as much time as you need to do procedures, in the short term, it's going to feel a bit painful, but your appointment book gets stretched out. Now, if you've got, you have to have control of your fees to do this. So if you are under any system where someone else decides what fees you can charge, then you can't do what I'm talking about. Okay, you have to fit your dentistry to the fee. But if you're in a private practice, you can take as much time as you need to do the case to the standard that you want to do it. It will slow you down to start with, It will fill, but it will fill your appointment book further ahead. And I can tell you that once your appointment book is you know, four weeks ahead or five weeks ahead or six weeks ahead because you're slowing down to do the cases to a really high standard, your treatment plans will become more sophisticated yeah. because you're not desperate. Like there, yeah. there is no temptation for you to rush a patient into the appointment book when you can't fit them in for six weeks anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah, because they say, don't they, that sales is a transfer of energy or whatever the term is. And if you're internally desperate and kind of feeling that, you know, you've got a lot of kind of desperation and that's going to transfer even subconsciously, you're not going to be able to avoid that person you know, uh, looking at things and, and sort of gauging what that is. I mean, you said it earlier on, didn't you? But mm. I think your calmness and delivery is is a lot more impactful than maybe some people realise. And so it's creating your working environment to, to suit the dentistry that you want to provide. I think that's really important. Yeah. 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 And look, uh and look, I, I, you know, I acknowledge that there are many ways to do dentistry and many of them quite different to what I do and what I teach, and that's perfectly fine. So uh, having acknowledged that, let's get back to how I teach and do it. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, that, that, what I've just described is very hard to learn, and you're quite right. Now, oh, that's what I was going to say. There is a big difference between what is good for a corporation and what is good for you psychologically as a dentist so if you worked for a big corporation like say you've got a practice and it's got 50 dentists the best thing for that corporation is to have spare appointments tomorrow because if they got spare appointments tomorrow they can continue to fit in new patients without having to have huge loyalty because those patients will come because they're in pain or it's an emergency so, and it's important to understand this because if you go to business management courses, they will teach you the importance of not being full tomorrow and how it's really great and everything. Psychologically, no dentist does their best work if they have a spare appointment tomorrow. Yeah. Psychologically, if you are booked out way ahead, okay, yes, it can get stressful because you have to say no to people, but at least you can say no. It's much yeah. easier to say no when you can't fit them for a month or so so but that i mean you know that wasn't an easy journey for me to learn so it's probably not for anyone else either you know it's yeah to to be fair yeah i think with you know obviously like you said earlier we we don't know what's going to happen but a lot of the whispers in the uk are talking about um having to do extended appointments gaps between patients 
Um, you know, how are you, if, if you're having to do certain decontaminations and you've got increased PPE for each individual person, then actually if you do your quadrant dentistry, you do more treatment in one go, you have longer appointments. And then actually from an, even from a financial point of view, you, you sort of, you, you're improving. So you kind of, it relates to what you're saying. We're sort of almost being forced into it in a way. So maybe it's good to look at it that way. Yeah, look, uh, uh, I wouldn't pay too much attention about people saying what's going to happen in the future because no one knows. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, ask anyone what they were planning to do in March back in January. <laughs> okay. All yeah. these experts, all the same people. I've seen people say in the same breath, the same post on Facebook, you know, the de- the economy is going to be a lot worse than we were expecting early in the year. So basically in the same sentence, they're saying we had no idea what was going to happen in the future at the start of the year, but now we think we do. So, yeah, I don't know. But getting back to sales, <clears throat> okay, sales is an interesting and and I definitely sell. And the best type of selling is where you're super professional and have the customer or the patient's best interest at heart. That's that's what great sales looks like. Great sales. If someone is doing great sales to you, you don't know that you're being sold to. Yeah. Because great sales just feels like someone trying to find out what you need very carefully and then very carefully delivering it to you, exceeding your expectations. So basically just doing the right thing. That's great sales. Yeah. <clears throat> but if you just want to look at pure sales theory, most people don't buy straight away. Most people, so like 60 to 70% of people, aren't ready to make a major decision for three months after they meet a business or a product or a service or a salesperson or a professional. So if you start thinking about, okay, the patient comes in with an emergency, you solve their emergency, then you do a talk about their overall situation and what it might look like in the future but then advise them that they can't actually go that way because they have to sort out their perio which is the right thing to do is it not like to sort out someone's perio and their caries and their root canals before you do a big makeover and to make sure that they can maintain their oral hygiene and that you can maintain their perio and that they actually even though they said they're going to quit smoking that they actually do quit um they're all that's what a professional should do like you know if you're getting you know, if you're getting uh, Nissan's fund duplication uh, for your reflux, they actually test to make sure you have reflux before they do it, you know, even yeah. though it takes time and slows down. So, But if you do all those things, guess how long it takes until you can see the patient for a consultation? Yeah. About three months, okay? yeah. which <clears throat> is... So by being more professional and doing things as you should, okay, getting the patient stable, getting them healthy before you launch into complex work and making sure you, you know, like I have some patients go, look, I'm not going to treat you until your oral hygiene is perfect. So you go do the mouthwashes, use your mineral creams and your fluoride rinses and your mouthwashes and come back for toothbrushing instructions every two weeks with my therapist because until you get your mouth clean and can keep it that way, I am not putting crowns in there. Yeah. Which takes about three months. Pure sales theory says the vast majority of people are not ready to buy for 60 to 90 days. Yeah. So just happens that being professional also makes you a really good salesperson. Yeah. And as well they said, don't they, Google did a study that found that people need seven contacts with someone else and 11 hours or 11 contacts in seven hours. Um, to yeah. sort of commit to a purchase actually by doing that as well you're ticking those boxes because they're, they're having contact with you you're, you're building up this goodwill um so yeah that's um i i've built a whole business teaching business dentists pretty much the same thing they were taught at dental school <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know because you get taught all this at dental school don't you, you get that okay, okay first get their oral hygiene under control and their perio and their caries make sure they're stable you know and uh, you know we're all thinking ah yeah that's nonsense but actually if you take the time to do that patients respect you more like you they've come in and they go okay i want like 20 veneers and you go well if you're lucky i will do them but first 
you have to prove to me that you can brush your teeth. Okay. And that you can control your caries and that your mouth doesn't like you've got active caries, white, mushy, active caries. That's not a place I'm going to do veneers. I'll do veneers when you, you got like nice black leathery caries. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. I want your teeth to look worse before they look better. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it, that, as I said before, it's hard to do. It's hard to have that discipline all the time. It's really difficult, but it is really successful. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're knocking on for, for an hour and I think we've gone through some really, really good stuff. You mentioned about your um, RIP Global. Um, I mm. just want to make sure because, I mean, I've spoke to, because we, we set this up um, quite reasonably last minute, but I've got quite a few people to, to give me a bit of, um, you know, because we have listeners all over the world and, I've been sort of trying to reach out to as many people as I could just to sort mm-hmm. of find what people want to talk about. And you've covered pretty much everything, if I'm honest, but I want to make sure that people that haven't, you know, the, the, the odd dentist that may not know who you are, um, sort of where would they go to sort of to find mm-hmm. these resource because the, the RIP global stuff is, is a brilliant resource. So I just want to make sure people know where to go for that. Okay. So there's, there's a few places you should, should go. First one is if you're on Facebook and we haven't renamed it yet, you should go to our original Facebook group, which is restorative implant practice, excellence, full protocol. And that, that you can't post before and after on there. It has to be a full case. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of really great multidisciplinary cases from really exceptional dentists all over the world. So it's a great resource and it will immerse you in multidisciplinary treatment planning because pretty much there's a lot of that there. So. That's great. Uh, <clears throat> Ripe Global, so www.ripeglobal.com, uh, R-I-P-E-G-L-O-B-A-L, as you would expect. Uh, we, we've been on this absolute mission to make education more accessible, more available, better, and less expensive. So uh, we set that up. Uh, we've, we've been, I run, I've been running courses with multiple dentists all over the world, so pretty much every continent. And, uh, but with Ripe Global, we, we realized that a lot of our online things, our online lectures and that really were too expensive for like in rich Western countries, you can afford it, but for 90% of the dentists in the world, it's just unaffordable. So, uh, we've very significantly lowered the cost of that and it's just a monthly subscription. It's 29 us dollars a month, uh, for most countries, for some countries, it's even less. And, uh, uh, we have video on there uh, covering how to do all the stuff I've just talked about. So RETP, my treatment planning course, it's a two-day course is on there. So it's like 14 hours on the topic that we've just been talking about, which you can watch for 30 bucks. It's, yeah. you know, if that's not a good deal, you know, then uh, you aren't into good deals. <laughs> Yeah, that's not <laughs> and there's new deal. stuff coming. I mean, we employ a movie director now, so we, you know, we were really stepping up the quality yeah. of the stuff that's coming out new. So we're we're getting pretty hectic. So, and and just just to finish, actually, I think what would be is is just an interesting thing to touch on that, um, you know, as as I sort of just were of you know researching and just looking at various things that you've done, you are really prolific, and people might look at you now and see the size of the Facebook group, see the size of the the training business, you know, look at the clinic that you've got, but actually you were doing videos on YouTube 10 years ago. You were doing posts in dental town, like 15 years ago. You know, you were, yeah, I did 15, I think, no, 13,000 posts on dental town before I quit. Yeah. Like that's just 2011. (laughs) You know, and it's kind of, you think about, um, what you need to do, you know, if you're looking, uh, if you're a, a 20 odd year old dentist and you're wanting to be the next superstar, um, then really, you know, you, you don't necessarily do it quickly. You've got to start laying the foundations because if you're consistent... They'll do it quicker pres- than I did. Yeah. yeah, so, the, yeah. the younger generation are better. They're much better than we were. So this is actually... You, you see an older generation getting annoyed by this because I'll see young people doing cases yeah. that are really advanced and like really good. <clears throat> I, I think it's terrific. And it's because of us sharing. Like they, they are immersed in it from day one and they see how it's done and they get free education and they get cheap education and they see that education is available everywhere 
and the younger generation are better. I mean, there's probably some that are worse too, but the, the good ones yeah. for sure are definitely better than we were or that yeah. I was when I graduated. Like, you know, I, I see young guys doing these layered composites, which I still can't do. Like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm crap at <laughs> Layered interiors. <laughs> Let someone else fix that stuff. <laughs> I've seen some of your anterior work, and I disagree. Um, <sighs> but I do think, yeah, you're right. I, I think that there's this whole. Um, sometimes it can seem a little bit tense. This this relationship between an older cohort of dentists and the younger guys, as though there's, you know, you, you, it's impossible to be good at that age because it took me this long. When the reality is that. I think people are bypassing a lot of time because you can access so much experience through social media and stuff, isn't it? You can't get 20 years of experience after two years. Okay, so you will absolutely be more mature in your teaching and you'll be more mature in your advice and you will be more mature in your treatment after 20 years than you will be after two. But that's not to say that someone two years out shouldn't teach like like I see people going, oh, well, you know, I didn't start teaching till I was 15 years out, so therefore no one else should. That's like the old, you know, like the hazing that goes on at private schools in the past. You know, I was yeah. treated, I was bullied in my first year, so I should bully everyone else, you know. Yeah. It's like that That theory doesn't really hold up. And, and so, yes, I mean, sure, there's some people who just get into something and they're teaching it straight away and they'll probably teach stuff that they will regret. So what? Everyone does that. Every teacher does that. Yeah. I regret some of the stuff. So rapid, efficient treatment planning used to actually be really rapid and efficient. Like we used to get the patients to the end. And I haven't changed the name, but it should probably now called very slow and methodical treatment planning that's really <laughs> effective and gets you a lot of yeah. a lot of very, very high treatment acceptance, but it isn't fast. <laughs> <laughs> but that name's not catchy. So. Yeah, yeah, rapid-ish, yeah. you know, put a little ish yeah. after it, yeah. Rapid, rapid, uh, yeah, no, it's... Kind of, rapid kind of. Yeah, yeah. The bit that's rapid is the exam, you know, how we choreograph the exams and how we use our team for that is rapid for sure. But, yeah, yeah it's, you don't want to get to your... You don't want to give the patient a treatment plan too quickly. That's my advice. Yeah. Especially yeah. if it's big... Yeah, big treatment plans quickly as recipe for dints in the door as the patient ran out. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, All so right, cheers, Link. No yeah. worries, mate.